This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. First of all, Happy New Year. I'm joined by our podcast producer, Daniel. Thanks, Farah. It's good to be back. And so for this week's episode, we have Helen Lewis, the associate editor of The New Statesman, in conversation with Rachel Botsman, who's an Oxford academic and tech expert on technology and trust. It's a really fascinating conversation. Rachel is a real expert on how technology affects how we interact with each other. And we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello, I'm Helen Lewis, Associate Editor at The New Statesman. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Rachel Botsman, one of the leading thinkers on trust in the digital age. Her latest book is Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and Why It Might Drive Us Apart. Hello, Rachel. Hello. Okay, let's start off because it's a big word and you start off trying to give a definition of trust in the book before moving on to explain why it's important. So what is your working definition of trust? What are we talking about here? <laughs> yeah, trust is such a funny subject to study because I think it's something that we think we understand and we use the word a lot. But when you ask people to define it, um, it's it's really difficult to define. Um, and often when you ask people to define trust, they actually start talking about the traits of trustworthiness. So what makes you think someone is trustworthy? So the way I define trust is really simple. Um, I describe it as a confident relationship to the unknown. And the key pieces in that being confident and unknown. So um, so if you jump out of a window, you know there's a mattress at the bottom. That's the kind of fundamental paradigm you're talking about. It's your relationship to risk. So trust essentially solves situations of risk. Um, and one of the misconceptions about trust is that you actually know the outcome. You trust people because you can predict how they're going to behave. That's not actually the case. So um, give an example from my personal life, you know, I travel for work. Um, For me, trust is that my husband doesn't need to know where I am or what I'm doing. He has a confident relationship to the unknown. He cares that I'm going to come home. If he had to um, know my location and who I was meeting with and was tracking me, that's the opposite of trust. Right. And also on a fundamental level, when you get into that aeroplane, you're trusting that there have been safety inspections, that the wings will stay attached. That, well, I mean, I, I never trust any of those things. when I. But, you know, I think it's fascinating to me that we put ourselves in the hands of other people so much without really thinking about it. One of the sentences that really struck me from the book is you talk about this misconception about living in an age of distrust because we have reduced trust in in institutions particularly. Um, Why do people say they don't trust bankers or politicians yet trust strangers to share a ride with them? And I I think to me that's the kind of heart of the... Of the, what, what you talk about in the book is that this model of trust. So talk us through the idea of, of evolving trust from local to institutional to now distributed trust. What does that mean? 
Yeah, so as you say, um, you can't open the paper without this narrative that trust is in crisis. And every time I hear it, I'm like, oh, I want to cross out the headline because um, I don't think that's what's happening. So when you start to think about trust, um, it informs every interaction, action, conversation. Like I have trust in you, faith in your ability. That's essentially what we're saying Mm -hmm. (laughs) when we trust someone. We have confidence or faith in them. So it could be like... I tell my kid, I trust you to turn out the lights, right? Small things like that. Or as you say, um, maybe not, I trust the government to navigate Brexit. So it informs very small daily actions and then really huge relationships in our lives. And so what's happening is people are saying that trust, when I hear trust is in crisis, I think that means that kind of like there's a sharp decline, right? That trust is disappearing in society. Um, And I don't think that's happening. So the way I think of trust is like energy, So energy doesn't get destroyed, it changes form. And when you zoom out, I started to think of trust in three chapters or three big episodes. The first is really easy to get our heads around. So um, it's local trust, existed for a very long period of history. It's when you and I lived in small villages and communities. For the most part, we knew everyone else. Um, We made decisions based on reputation, what friends and family said. And it worked, but it was contained. So when people started to move to large cities, when we wanted to trade internationally, basically expand our circle of trust, we needed a new mechanism. So we invented what I call institutional trust. Um, And we invented all kinds of mechanisms that went along with that. So everything from insurance, um, contracts, um, middlemen like agents and brokers. Um, I even think corporate brands are an example of institutional trust. And in a weird way, trust stopped flowing directly between people and started to flow through these institutions. Now, what's happening is many of the pains and patterns of disruption in society is because this third form of trust is rising up that I call distributed trust that is enabled through networks and systems and platforms. And essentially, in a weird way, what it enables is that we can trust one another directly, but we could be a complete stranger. So you give the example of jumping in an Uber, sharing a home on eBay, cryptocurrencies, people who deal on the dark web. Um, But it can also be things like sharing and believing information from someone we don't know um, on social media channels. So we're in its infancy, but we're already seeing signs of distributed trust everywhere. Well, let's pause and and just focus on the the downswing, which is the institutional trust, because I think the one of the things that your book does really well is communicates how strange and lucky and how unlikely that feels to have, have been something that rose up. You give the example of um, trading routes across, I'm going to say, across Iran, like the beginning of the Silk Road. And it reminded me of one of my favourite ever moments on uh, In Our Time, you know, the Radio 4 show that Melvin Bragg hosts, mm-hmm. where he was doing something about the Medicis. And he st- turned to his academic and went, how do you start a bank? Yeah. <laughs> and it was one of those kind of classic Melvin Bragg questions where you just kind of go, ah. And, but it's a really good point, right? To, you can't, to go from a situation in which there is no bank to yeah. one in which there is a bank is a huge leap of trust. People have got to give you their money, trust that you're not going to go, thanks, you know, lads, see you in Rio. And it's paper. Yeah. It's printed paper. Like that's, for me, money is an ultimate form of trust. Exactly, right. Yeah. It's, a, it's an IOU slip. And, 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 and then that period, you know, talking about the 15th century, you know, you're talking about gold and silver coins that could have been clipped or, you know, um, pe- you know promissory notes, you know, states that might functionally vanish and therefore no longer be able to kind of um, validate fiat currency. You know, now, the, you know, the idea that the Bank of England would kind of fold is, is, is almost unbelievable. Mm. But the idea of a bank folding then was, I think, much... You know, less uh, hard to imagine. So that that 
you know, is that was that a fundamental shift in 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 how humans related to each other? You think mm. that that somehow, and what what caused that? What would what were the conditions that created the ability for us to create institutional trust? Well, I think there were um, conditions that caused it, and then there were conditions that made us need it in a way. Right? There was a vacuum. So often, I think massive inventions rise up in a vacuum. So um, distance is a big one, right? So mass urbanization, people moving away from each other, um, that you suddenly can't look in someone's eyes, right? Like that the physicality is removed from relationships was a really big driver. Um, that you didn't purchase goods from people that you knew. Um, it's really interesting when you look at the history of corporate brands, um, probably not surprisingly, but the first wave were all family brands, right? So, um, you know, uh, especially the food companies. So Heinz is a really good example of that. that right. And I think, the, you know, the whole idea between kind of Colonel Sanders and KFC was that you kind of had a kind of, you know, like lots of the, the brands I think of from that era would have a kind of kindly old face on them, you know? You could connect the person to the brand. So it wasn't so far removed and that made sense to people. So um, I think one of the first uh, sort of brand marks was actually Bass Beer um, and the Bass family brewed the beer. Um forgotten where we were going this but oh the invention of institutions so a lot of it was that the physicality that we grew literally quite uh, further and further apart and the things that and products that we and services we were buying we couldn't look that person in the face so we needed to cut some kind of um, stamp of approval and then I think we became just really creative in terms of how do you invent mechanisms that allow you to manage risk because essentially that's what trust is doing. So um, what does a contract do, right? It reduces risk in a situation. What should um, insurance do? It should give you permission to take a risk where you wouldn't otherwise take that risk. And so all these things were happening. And as you say, this really changed not just trade, but the relationships that we had with one another. And one of the questions is, did we start trusting one another less and starting placing faith, more and more faith and confidence in these really large systems. Um, and now is that what is that the pain and frustration that we feel is that we feel that these systems got so big that they started to forget the person and started to serve the system. Is there also a difference between people who you might kind of think of as high and low information consumers? I'm just thinking about them. There's a perpetual complaint about among kind of foodie people that, oh, well, our high streets are really homogenous. You know, it's very hard for small restaurants and I have to say, somebody who travels a fair bit in my job, I, nothing relieves me more than turning up in a, a city that I don't know and seeing, mm. uh, like, somewhere selling Diet Coke, right? Or somewhere, you know, somewhere that's got a mm. Pret or a McDonald's or whatever it is. Because because those foods are so homogenous and so standardised, I trust them. Whereas I don't want to spin the roulette wheel of maybe this tiny restaurant will be amazing or maybe it will give me salmonella. And I think it's probably a, there's a different relationship of trust between people with high information, people who've had time to research somewhere, mm. and then somebody who's just turning up cold. Uh, you know, what is the relationship between those two factors, between information and trust? Yeah, but uh, I think how much information you have also really informs your risk profile. So um, I find this really interesting that you have that relationship to small restaurants where I wouldn't even think of that. I would walk straight in there. But I have... Um, I look for a lot of information around location and hotels and I'm quite scared of physical dangers. Mm -hmm. Like these are the things. So people have very different reactions to risk. We all have a very different risk propensity. And saying people, you know, have a high tolerance to risk is silly because it's really, really contextual. So a way of answering your question is it's where we seek information. Um, so we often seek the information around things that we don't trust the most, but still revert back to things that we know. 
That makes sense. Are there okay? So if you can't generalize about who is more, you know, risk taking, um, are there other traits sometimes that it correlates with? I'm just thinking about the fact, you know, the, the research by people like Jonathan Haidt about left and right being correlated with kind of curiosity and openness, mm. for example. You know, are there? I mean, it's classically said that. Uh, you know, men are bigger risk takers. I remember that great quote from Harriet Harman about um, the financial crisis, which wouldn't have happened if it had been layman's sisters. And you kind of, which was about blaming a kind of macho, testosterone fueled, risky work environment. But is any of that stuff actually scientifically supported about who who takes more risks? No, I mean, and the the thing, no one or very few people have were just starting to study is um, whether men and women trust differently in the digital world, which is a huge question, right? So. Um, do men, and this is a total hunch, um, do they respond to more quantitative measures, right? So on Amazon, um, do they look, oh, it's 5.0, um, it's got five-star reviews, um, and do women tend to be more qualitative? Are they going to actually read the remarks? So we don't even know yet if men and women use different signals to decide whether to trust someone or something, uh, which I think is fascinating as to why that really hasn't been studied. I think there is a real problem with men and trust in the sense of I was just having a conversation um, about male nannies, right? And people are very resistant to male nannies because of the feeling they think, well, you know, but whereas they would trust a woman to be with young children, there is a kind of lingering fear that, you know, we know there are more, quote unquote, bad men out there. And I think that stuff is really hard to quantify because it is unfair on the vast majority of men who are not paedophiles. That I don't know if don't... that's the, where the trust issue lies. Oh, I right. think we often get the trust issue wrong. So we actually had a male nanny when we were growing up. His name was Francois. He was from France. He was very handsome. I mean, um, <laughs> was that sounds great. Man. All of that and sounds he great. He was a professional golfer <laughs> and ski also instructor. Great. Um, he wasn't much help around the house. He was helpful to other women in the area, um, but not much help to my <laughs> right. mum. Um, and I think that's actually, if you ask her why she wouldn't trust a male nanny, it's not that she didn't trust him around me or around her. It's she wouldn't trust him to actually get the job done. So um, I think and I think it's an interesting point because our reaction is often we think the issue that gets in the way of trust is often completely different from the actual trust barrier. That's really interesting. Yes, I guess the problem as well is that it's about um, you know the heuristics we use that we we have to make snap decisions about trust very very quickly, and there is going to be a percentage failure rate on those. One of my favourite um, trust theorists is a guy called Diego Gambetta, and he's got he's got that quote you wish you written, and he always says um, trust has two enemies, not one: bad character and poor information. And I think about that so often in my life because I actually think you often have quite. Um, an emotional reaction, quite an intuitive feel around bad character. But where we often make poor trust decisions is because we don't have enough information in our lives. I think that's really interesting when we come to talk about this new phase that you talk about in the book about distributed trust. Because one of the things I think that online communication has done, it's stripped out all, all we call the you know, phatic elements of language, the tone, the gesture, mm. all of that kind of stuff. You know, it was very hard, notoriously the kind of people lobbying for a sarcasm font online because you just can't, it's very hard to read people's What tone. would that look like? I don't know. I think maybe, a, I think I use Curly. kind of italics as, a, as, a, as a, <laughs> my sarcastic font. But yeah, but I think it's an attempt to restore all the things that when you're, you know, it's one-to-one human communication, mm. you can just do it. And I think... You know, that sometimes backfires. People say that one of the problems with job interviews is you should, you know, write a very strict set of criteria first. Otherwise, you can be way, way, way too swayed by just somebody who you instantly click with mm. um, and actually don't really pay attention to whether or not they've got all the qualifications. But online distributed trust. So my colleague at the New Statesman, Ian Leslie, wrote a column based on around your book, which started with this anecdote about him 
hiring a babysitter from mm. an app, uh, which I think is he thinks is crazy, but it worked out very nicely. Like the ba- the children enjoyed the babysitter, mm. everything was fine. I thought the same. I had a cleaner come yesterday based around an app, and that's a trust for me, but also I think a huge leap of trust, particularly for people working to mm. those apps if they're coming into someone else's house, you know, four or five times a day. So is there an attempt on those to restore some of that kind of, you know, how do you make distributed trust work? What are the Mm. things that makes it work better? Yeah, I mean, cynics often say, well, that's not trust, that's convenience, right? So they'll say convenience will trump trust. So even if you were sort of hesitant about this cleaner coming into your house, you wanted the convenience of it. And so you made a decision. The same with the babysitter. It's actually really hard to find babysitters on demand, right? So the convenience of it. I don't think that's true. I think it's actually remarkable when you look at how technology has enabled us to trust total strangers, particularly in those areas around our kids. So there's a site in um, the US called Urban Sitter, and the founder is actually a mum of twins called Lynn Perkins. And she couldn't raise money because venture capitalists are like, look, cars are one thing, renting a home is another thing, but this is is a terrible idea. Um, And it's really interesting the way she's – studying, literally studying trust signals. So trust signals are the clues or symbols that we're using to make a decision as to whether to trust someone. One of the interesting things they found is that um, you'd assume that, so if you go on these apps, usually it's like, I can see uh, Jane used um, Jenny and Jane's um, son is at my school, right? So that's a signal. That's a way that, oh, right, well, I use the same sitter. That's actually not the most powerful signal. The most powerful signal is if I use, I have a babysitter called Ella, and if Ella's not available, um, if Ella recommends someone that she trusts, that's actually a stronger referral than a parent that I know recommending a babysitter. Because I trust Ella. Ella knows my children. And what we often forget is Ella's walking into my house, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot of trust on the side of the sitter mm-hmm. that you're not walking into the house of a complete stranger. So I think that's really interesting is that do we really understand online where the real source of trust lies. But I guess when I think about that situation, I think, do you, some part of you, think of the other parents as competitors and you think, well, they were, maybe they would recommend me someone rubbish because no. if they had a really good sitter, they <laughs> want to keep them to themselves. I've seen them outside the school gates. <laughs> like, you recommended and they were awful. And they stole my spoons. But um, also, I think it's interesting because I would say Ella in that position is also an expert. But I do think she is an expert in that. She has influence. I know if she's an expert, she has influence because she understands context. She understands environment. She understands the children. She has information about us. And this is the thing I think we often, and it's the thing that actually bothers me about a lot of platforms, is we don't spend enough time really thinking about the welfare and the safety of the providers. Mm. Um, what those, it, I mean, it's everywhere, the hosts, the drivers, the task rabbits, the babysitters, what they need to feel trusted and safe because we're so used to growing up in a society where consumers have all the power. So that's also really interesting as to whether we can design digital environments actually equal out the information that that babysitter can have information on me, as much information as me as the parent as I do as on the sitter. I think that's absolutely vital and it's something I don't think people particularly understand about when you're working in those kind of jobs in that economy that one of the most radical things that uber did was to give uh, riders a rate a star yes. rating as well as drivers so it's not like you just get to go this person was very slow or like i didn't like the car whatever you know then and then you know you have you get rated on whether or not you were fundamentally you, know, you were sick in the back of their taxi or you were sweary yeah. or aggressive or whatever it is and that is actually 
slightly eased the, what was otherwise a very asymmetric relationship. But the problem there for me is that I feel that both parties still have a very unfair information relationship with Uber itself. Yes. Uh, and I think that's true across a lot of those gig economy apps is that, you know, the information that you know riders are getting from Deliveroo is not is not often great. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. they are they are kind of working in the dark. And actually, in, in a world in which information is so much power, these companies that are you know they might be creating peer to peer connections, but they're also hoarding a huge amount of very valuable information for themselves. Yeah. No. I mean, I think um, there's so much you said in that. So yes, like this idea that you rate both sides is, is a very clunky system. We've all been in the car. It's like you give me five, I give you five. Um, but the principle behind it is mutual accountability. Mm. And if we can get that principle right, that we will actually, it will nudge our behaviours so we behave better as consumers and citizens. There's something very powerful in that. Are we there? No. Um, the point you made about Uber and Deliveroo, I think, is is really key because I think when these platforms first, you know, I've been selling them now for 12 years, when they first started to emerge, um, even the people, the entrepreneurs designing these platforms, they assumed or maybe they wished or were hopeful that the trust would purely exist between the two people interacting or exchanging on the platform, right? So the buyer and the seller on eBay, the host and the guest on Airbnb, and that their role was to really facilitate that transaction. I think the shift that we've seen in the last two years is on all different levels, people saying, well, where does trust and responsibility really lie? And if you have information about either sides that could be useful information, don't you have a responsibility to disclose that? Um, And that's where I think we're entering a whole new era of accountability on platforms and starting to question how useful these reviews and ratings really are. Well, let's come back to that, but we'll have a quick break. I'm back with Rachel Botsman, tech expert and author of Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and Why It Might Drive Us Apart. One of the things you picked up there was this idea about um, individual trust, which I think oddly in the era of distributed trust has kind of resurged as we moved away from institutions. I think it's really notable that um, there was a survey before uh, the EU referendum about, you know, who would you trust to give you information? And one of the people was, I'm always getting his name wrong, and I'm very sorry to him, I'm going to say Martin Lewis. I know he's a Lewis because I'm a Lewis, but but moneysavingexpert.com, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that... Uh, and I think the same thing with it's really strange to to me in journalism that, uh, you know, when I started out, everyone wanted to be like a, maybe a foreign correspondent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was the kind of glamorous thing where you kind of put on your flak jacket and you uh, and you got all the awards for that. Now it feels like everybody wants to be an opinion columnist. Do you think so? Yeah. When I talk to young journalists, that's the kind of that's they see that as the kind of because that's the place where you not only do you get paid very well as you know in journalism terms, but everyone listens to you. You are heard, which I think is kind of part of the modern condition about what happens. But what's also interesting to me is I think the people who don't necessarily trust brands trust writers. Mm. And actually there are writers who are bigger than their, you know, the, and they outgrow their their brands. So I think mm. you have someone like another Lewis, sorry, I've got Lewis on the break, Michael Lewis, you know, who wrote Love for him. Vanity yeah. Fair for a long, he's got a big, big deal mm. with Audible now. Mm. Um, and, you know, it is he is a, he is a brand. He, you know, uh, has kind of outgrown anyone. People trust him to get things right more, actually, than I think they would do, which is the other way around, you know. It mm. used to be that you were a reporter for the New York Times and no one really cared what your name was, but they trusted the mm. imprint. And I wonder if one of the things that has done that to journalism is particularly the way social media has t- taken people away from individual sites and loyalty to individual brands. Mm. And you now begin to see everything in a kind of soup 
Uh, one of the things I've always had a problem with about the way that Facebook, particularly Facebook Instant Articles, worked was that you just took away the architecture that allowed you to decide whether or not this news article was coming from a you know nice, respectable site or from mm. a kind of supermarket tabloid. They all looked, you know, in that sort of Facebook aesthetic, the same. Do you think that that's an that's part of distributed trust, this kind of rise of personal trust, or is it? it are people the new institutions? Um, so I think it's what you're talking about in journalism is a symptom of the underlying shift, which is the shift from sort of the monolithic to the individualized mm. or the institution to the individual, where the faith that we place in an inst- individual over an institution um, has completely sort of inversed. Um, and we've seen that. I mean, like President Trump, I hate to talk about Trump, but mm. he is the ultimate manifestation of that. It's not to say they're not part of the institution, but it's where there's more faith placed in the individual than the institution. Um, Journalism is another place. Like I don't buy this whole um, sort of lack of faith in experts. I think it's more about um, a lack of confidence in elitism or a lack of accountability. Um, But you're absolutely right. It's it's about – more trust in individuals than corporate brands itself, which is, you think of the implications of that, it's absolutely huge. Well, one of the things I think is interesting to pick up is that idea about what institutions, you know, institutions are kind of, I think, flailing around lots of times Mm. about trying to, what they can do, pining for the kind of lost days. Mm. Um, One of the things that's often considered is the idea of more transparency. You know, uh, I remember a couple of years ago, The Guardian trialled its open (laughs) news list, right? When it it was going to just tell people and give them a chance to input into stories. And there wasn't a kind of, massive amount of interest in it which I thought was an interesting thing because one of the most reliable ways you can get people to read an article online is such and such is happening and no one's talking about it or such and such is happening and the BBC isn't covering you know this is what the mainstream media doesn't want you to hear this whole idea that there is you know, something being kept hidden. That something being, and mm. I think it's really notable when you see um, the coverage of Tommy Robinson, for example, mm. right? Stephen Yaxley Lennon, the um, far right agitator, whose whole premise was, "I'm Facebook Live broadcasting from these grooming trials because there's something that you're not being told." And it was very hard for mainstream media to communicate. Well, only for the moment, there are these reporting restrictions which we're trying to challenge, which have a functional institutional point mm. about the the operation of justice. And there is a kind of I think there's a really interesting thing happening there with people wanting full transparency, but actually, it, when it becomes boring, they kind of don't want it. Do you see what I mean? Why doesn't transparent? Why isn't that relationship straightforward? Why doesn't transparency increase trust straightforwardly? It's it's such a huge question. Yeah. So um, let me try and unpack. Like, what is transparency? What's the relationship to trust? And what I think people are asking for when they ask for transparency. So um, let me start with like. So when you ask people about the relationship between trust and transparency, and and there's people in politics, NGOs, um, in business, and I ask them to draw um, a graph. So I ask them to plot trust on one side and transparency on the other side, right? And they will often draw this like sort of correlation that if they increase transparency, they will create more trust. Mm -hmm. And you you hear it all the time, right? The way we're going to fix this trust issue is we're going to be more transparent. And to go back to the way the definition of trust that trust is a confident relationship to the unknown. If you need for things to be transparent, you've actually given up on trust. They're not unknown, right? If you can see the mattress outside the window, you know you're going to land on it, then that's not a trust Exactly. Like if everything is completely visible, um, you need very little trust. So um, transparency has its place. But let's be clear, like if you make things more transparent, you're not sort of increasing that trust barometer. You're reducing the need for trust. You're saying to people, you don't trust us, 
because the need for transparency stems from this very deep feeling of I don't know mm. and I need to know something. I think there's something I should know. That's why we call for transparency. Um, so I think, um, so first of all, this idea that we're going to increase trust through transparency is just simply not true. We're going to reduce the need for um, trust. The second thing is um, I think we should be really careful when we're asking for transparency when we don't really know what the problem is that we're seeking visibility around. I I don't want to live in a transparent society um, because I think when you head down that route, you start to think that secrecy is the real enemy here, that secrecy is the enemy of trust. Everyone should be able to have secrets. Companies should be able to have secrets. Government should be able to have secrets. Deception is the real enemy of trust. And so I think transparency is often a solution to secrecy, but transparency does nothing to fix, or very little to fix deception, I should say. And so I think when people are actually calling for transparency, what they're really seeking to understand is that person or that company's intentions. They don't believe that their intentions are aligned with mine. So they believe that they're doing something that if they found out, they would think there was some kind of misalignment of intentions. So it's a long-winded way of, I feel really passionate about this because it's really taken hold that we're going to fix all these trust issues and everyone should become more transparent. I think where transparency has a place, gender pay is a really good example, right? Mm. Like where we know there's a problem and that if we had hard data around this problem and we know that companies and organizations have the information around this and if we really could see the gender pay cap, it would make people more accountable. And so where transparency is driving visibility, that will lead to a level of accountability that really can affect change. That's where I think it's a good application of transparency. Transparency is just because we don't trust people or we believe something's being kept hidden, I think is a, a bad application of transparency. Yeah, I think you're right in the sense that it's quite counterproductive to feed a narrative that, you know, if you've got nothing to fear, you've got nothing to hide. You know, that kind of idea that it, by default, our assumption is if somebody doesn't want to be completely transparent about everything, it must be because there is some wrongdoing. Rather than the fact that, you, like you say, I think politics has been really affected by the way that there's so much, you know, so much of it now happens on WhatsApp groups, right, mm. which are very easy to leak screenshots of. And actually, you know what, to function, sometimes you need to have a discussion between yourselves that is kind of frank and open, but can't go any further, right? It's the whole point about cabinet collective responsibilities. You might not agree all the time, but you can't have somebody constantly sitting at the back going, by the way, I disagreed <laughs> with all of this. Well, uh, yeah, it kind of turns out that you, you can, and that's what you have a dysfunctional government. But gender pay, the way the gender pay gap stuff has worked is really interesting, because I think that's an example of good transparency, as you say, because it's been limited. Mm. And it's not like everybody has to tell us exactly how much they're paid. It's saying, let's publish the averages mm. in this firm, the median. Let's say how many women are in the bottom quartile of job, you know, how many. Uh, and what it does is give you snapshot kind of information across the piece. So I think that's there's, that's an interesting thing between you you're saying that you trust any individual executive, that you're not trying to find someone to blame. No. You're trying to work out what's wrong with the system. And I think you're right about the difference between transparency being applied to on a personal level, as if any everyone needs to kind of live in a panopticon before we can possibly trust anything they have to say about anything. It's like a very contained 
problem that if you made it visible in some way could lead to action. That's like really good transparency. Supply chains are another really good example of that. But bad transparency, and again, like this, you hear it all the time in boardrooms, like um, if we have more transparent teams, they're going to trust one another more. Like there's tons of research that looks at the correlation between cultures where leaders have to know everything or, you know, a symptom for me is if I look at the number of people CC'd on an email, Right. Like that's that's a bad that's always a bad sign because that to me says like I want to spread blame if this goes badly. Yeah. it's And so really, again, when we are talking about transparency, I think what we're looking for is actually accountability. Um, it's really Esther Perel, who I adore, who does a lot of work around infidelity. Like mm. she talks about this in a really interesting way. So she looks at affairs and how couples can recover from them. And one of the things she always talks about is like if she has a couple, um, and you know, there's she's got this amazing series called "Where Should We Begin." It's a podcast series. It's the, on, uh, yeah, it's iTunes. brilliant. Yeah. And you you listen to those couples, and you can hear like the ones that they they ne- need to know, right? They need to know the details of this. They cannot move on, and it's only when they get to this place of actually giving up the need for transparency in their relationship that you actually start to heal, see them heal, start to trust one another again. So. I don't know why we, you know, we kind of see it in places like infidelity, but we still, we don't apply it to corporate cultures or what we're asking for from journalism or government. We just think transparency has become this morally virtuous thing. Right. I think that's really interesting because, yeah, you're right. If you apply it to a relationship, if you look to the outside at a relationship where one partner demanded to know where the other was at all times said, like, I want to be able to look at your phone. Those are all the kind of things that I would say that's classic, you know, coercive control. That mm. is a, often a very bad and controlling relationship where and as you say one person doesn't trust the other one and mm. and assumes constantly that any you know misstep is must be bad and and that's the and and it's quite hard to port that over to a corporate culture but exactly the same thing if your assumption is that if i've not been told about something it's because there's a conspiracy against me yeah that is a bad way to be working or be thinking about people that you work with but i think it's much it's i think it's really quite common to assume that there's, you know, that everything is that's happened. If you haven't heard about it, it's bad. Or you know, yeah. you know, if your colleague's having a meeting without you, then that's, you know, then there's clearly something up. And and bad managers, I think, probably indulge that too, right? They they play people off against each other, make people feel insecure. And the consumption of human energy around that, like it's, I was talking to a friend, and um, you know, this whole thing with schools right now. I don't know if you have children of school age, but um, they. Um, a lot of schools have to get into this real-time reporting thing, right? So they're telling the parents what they're doing every day and they have to take photographs of the kids, particularly in primary schools. And and um, my children go to a school where it's the good old-fashioned way that you get report at the end of term. Well, I got good. Like that was it, one sentence, right? And I don't really know what happens in that classroom. And we got into this really in- interesting discussion and she was saying, but you have a right to know. And I said, no, like I should have faith in that teacher and confidence in that teacher that what they're doing during the school day is is up to her that's her little microculture that's her community like why should i why should i have the need to know what my son and daughter are doing every single day and the the energy the teachers must use to putting in these kinds of reports now it's it, i use it because i think it's an example of the kind of culture and society we could be moving into if we talk, keep talking about this idea of transparency and visibility see then maybe this is me getting conspiracies but when i hear stuff like that i think that is to some extent i wonder if that's a backlash against working women 
because what you're doing there is giving the the parents, Mission which will to, often be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to actually loading another task onto them and saying you're a bad parent if you don't care at you know at five p.m. You're not downloading it. And whereas there's great research, I think Bridget Schulter writes about it in her book Overwhelmed about the fact that you know parents now spend as much time with their children as parents in the fifties mm. did. Mm. Right? It's just that you know even though lots of those mothers weren't working, they were off seeing their friends, they were playing whist, whatever it is that mm. people did. And now there is sort of this assumption that if you're not you know a hundred percent in your children's face all the time mm. then that's that's a kind of and again it's about not trusting people to be parents right it's about setting bars for them that they have to kind of clear like i guess part of our insane obsession that we have now with everything having kind of metrics applied to it which is kind of part of what you're talking about yeah. in this book right it's yeah. the idea that everything can be quantified and everything sh- therefore should be quantified mm. yeah i mean um I don't know how we got into kids in the classroom, but no. But I think, but you know, it's it's. I often think about this that if kids think about that, there's a report going home every day, and like you know, that they get so used to faking the smile, and like it's kind of a lack of trust and faith in them. Like I'm often, I think about that with my own children. Like, why do I need to know what they're up to? That what kind of skills are we actually teaching them? And I particularly think about this because I do think what is and I talk about this a lot in the book, of the next generation of likes and reviews and rating and, you know, what kind of hedonic treadmill are we putting them on that they think they've always got to rise to the top and be the highest rate and the highest liked. And that, I think, is one of the real downsides to a culture of distributed trust. One of the things you write about in the book is about blockchain and cryptocurrencies and and this idea about whether or not they will be the future of money. I didn't like writing that chapter. (laughs) (laughs) No one, no one likes blockchain. Apart from, well, like thirty guys really love blockchain, but everyone else is about it. Thirty but, guys really understand it. Yeah, but it is a fascinating because again, you mentioned supply chains. People talked about the the use of blockchain, and, mm. and that you might actually, you know, as, as, as you add things to uh, the log, you know, basically, if, if you kind of have this very long algorithmic string, I'm, I'm going to not explain this very well, but that, that everything you can see is on there, right? Mm. That, that every interaction with that is 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 marked and recorded, and you can kind of use it as a as a log. And yet I do not, and I sense your scepticism too, do not look at blockchain and think, actually, you know, scrap the tenors. This is where we're, we're going. And it's again, it's another example of ultra transparency. You know, there's just mm. been several big crashes in cryptocurrency. Uh, you know, all these people who company went, no, this time it's different. It's definitely yeah. not a bubble now looking a bit sort of sad and deflated. My my interest actually, so I hate when people describe it as a trustless system. I don't get that. I mean, I think it's an amazing truth machine is the way I think about it. The economists actually use that term. Um, but for me, it has inter- an application in, well, three interesting places, but let me focus on two. One um, is actually situations where you pay a lot for a trusted intermediary. So you're paying a lot for some kind of value exchange and you put an intermediary in the middle. So real estate is the classic example that we get our heads See, around. I loved in the book you were talking about um, Jack Maher and Alibaba and this idea about the, the fact that it kind of he managed to get around the regulation of banks in China by this idea of kind of escrow accounts, mm. and, which I think is a, a thing that probably doesn't come up. I can, the only time I can think of anything when I've done that is when, I've had, when I got a mortgage. It's not a kind of particularly familiar concept to, to most people. Mm. But the idea that you have somebody who's kind of sitting in the middle as a, as a broker. Right? Yeah, so I think that's another – so I think it's where – we're paying a lot because we need some kind of trusted intermediary and we start to ask how much value they really add. So auditors being another example. And I think if you could actually remove them and value trans- transfer value directly without the need for those intermediaries, huge applications. 
Um, I think the second is what you're talking about is in low trust situations where it wouldn't normally be possible for two people to trust one another. So what Jack Ma did in China when people weren't even barely on the internet and where the idea that you're going to send goods to a complete stranger was just culturally like just completely they couldn't even imagine that this would work this idea of an escrow account was actually pure genius it's the way um drug dealers actually work on the dark net so um right i see i, I really this is my favorite yeah it turns a bit more about the drug dealers. this is my favorite <laughs> bit about the economics of drug dealing that i think i've read since free economics so how do yeah how do, how do drug dealers need trust Drug, I mean, so drug dealers need a lot of trust, right? So, um, and I think this is where, so just, so for those who don't know, the, the Darknet is where um, drug dealers, like if you go on there, it looks a lot like Amazon or Zappos, right? And um, the review systems look really similar. And you log on through something like Tor, you know, some something that then disguises your location and your IP address. And yeah, and you, you often um, exchange in cryptocurrencies. So it's anonymous, so to speak. Um, the thing that's really interesting is that if you look at drug testing, so the FDA have actually tested the quality of drugs, um, and dealers are reluctant to lie. They're reluctant to send low-quality goods through these channels because their reputation is everything because there's so much con- competition in these marketplaces that if they cut the drugs in the wrong way or they didn't quite send you um, the right amount, or they were low quality drugs, or they were a completely different drug, whatever it was, um, their reputation would be ruined. And so I think this is absolutely fascinating to me where you think of people that should be untrustworthy, but the trust system works remarkably well. But also, I wonder if that one of the reasons they might be more trustworthy is because the kind of the sanction is maybe like someone coming around with a baseball bat rather than a one star. <laughs> no, you don't Amazon know review. where they are. Yeah, it's, I mean that's not that's not it's not fear of the penalty isn't which I think is really an interesting argument, right? You're always going to have drugs in society, so should you really get rid of the dark net? Versus, you know, you start to look at it's a whole different conversation, but actually studying the way these trust mechanisms work and work remarkably well between sellers and buyers of drugs, I think is fascinating. Yes, it is an uncomfortable fact that if you're going to have a market in drugs, you really do, for public health reasons, want people to be, know what they're buying, know the strength of what they're buying, know that what they're buying hasn't been cut with you know, rat poison or whatever. Yeah. Is it, that's I not an endorsement of sitting the down part. with my children and going, I mean, because I really went Especially on these sites. You're like, you know, if you're thinking of buying this, I can recommend this seller because <laughs> they have the best reputation. Like, it's not, not a conversation I imagine having, but it's kind of a conversation you want to have, right? Because there is a sensibility around it. That, And the amazing thing is on these sites that if they are padding, they call them padding reviews or like faking reviews, they then get found out on all these discussion boards so um, the forgery of reviews is actually also much lower on drug marketplaces than it is on traditional marketplaces. That's fascinating to me because one of the perpetual complaints I have from friends who write books is that Amazon doesn't ask for a verified mm. purchase, right? So what, what happens quite often if, like, if you're a feminist and you annoy people, then you just get 100 people come and give you one-star reviews. All people leave one-star reviews on Amazon that are like, this arrived late. And you're like, <laughs> right, but the, the quality of the book is not... Is well, I've got one three-star review and, you know, like, you, you can't read the good reviews. Like, that's human nature. <laughs> and I click on it it's like yet to read the book and you're like well, how is that three stars <laughs> why did you leave a review if you haven't read it yet but, or like a friend who reviews books and she wanted to leave me a review and she couldn't because she actually hadn't bought anything on Amazon because 
she doesn't right. like Amazon. So she, I think you actually do have to have some kind of verified purchase, but it doesn't have to be the thing that you bought. No, but Amazon has to know who you are uh, and has taken money off you in the past, I guess, but not that you've bought. It does have the a good. tag that now says yeah. verified purchase, for, yeah, which I guess is one of those, again, restoring a signal. Like this person has at least definitely bought or touched the book at yeah. some point. Like the book has arrived at their house. We can't vouch for whether or not they've read it. I mean, you could set up quite a simple system where in order to leave a review, you had to type in the you know, fifth word in the second line on page 30 or whatever it was, like <laughs> ra- randomly algorithmic. But, you know, but, yeah, which I, I, I think Amazon would probably consider to be a bit too much work. But there, were, there would be things that you could do. I, I think what's interesting, though, we'll move on from drug dealers in a second, but if you look at behind, intentions are so important when it comes to trust. They really are. And if you look at the intention behind reviews on drug sites, it's essentially to keep people safe there's a real higher order to why people are leaving reviews, right? It's life or death. Um, so, And weirdly, I would imagine a sense of community too, right? There is like, a very strong sense of community. It's us against the world. We're these kind of outlaws that are doing this, whereas there is no Amazon community. There's no Facebook community. No, it's, it's the world, mm. right? And there's an incentive to leave this information because you hope that someone else would leave the same kind of information which would give you more choice to right. interact with other dealers. <laughs> I, like I say, I really highly recommend it to people. But if you want some, um, yeah, if you want to read a bit more about how, yeah, how, how drug dealing works, not that this is an advert for drug Jamie, dealing. Jamie Bartlett wrote a really good book on this yeah. so on the dark web. Yeah. Um, so uh, one final thing I want to ask you about is the actually about um, experts and this idea of experts because it really struck me. One of the things that we've been talking about in the last year is as the kind of Me Too movement has taken off is mm. you know who gets trusted, whose word is mm. law. And Rebecca Solnit writes about this in the context of. Uh, Iranian rape allegations where, you know, this kind of old-fashioned system where you had to, you know, not only you, as a woman you said to say I've been raped, but actually I can produce three male witnesses, right? Mm. This idea that your word only counts for kind of half or not even that. Um, how, when we're, you know, how do we get to an equitable state of, of trust where everybody, regardless of their race or gender or sexuality, whatever it is, gets, mm. you know, gets that level playing field of trust to start from? I don't know if we can. I mean, that's. I think there's also a difference. Between, well, there's a relationship between trust and influence as well, which is really interesting. Go on, unpack that for me. Um, so, you know, if you are trusted, you have more influence, right? So there is immense power in trust that we often don't think about. So, um, if I trust Kim Kardashian's word over a beauty product, she has enormous influence over that industry. That that's a very bad example, but. Um, that's my. I don't think it is because if she has a row with some lesser person, uh, you know, some like beauty, like random yeah. beauty blogger who says actually this product that Kim Kardashian is flogging is crap, then it doesn't matter because like her footprint is so much bigger than than yeah. The so other person. I guess where I was going with Kim Kardashian is that we often conflate social influence as with whether that person really is trustworthy. Mm. So. Um, you know, not that I recommend that you always go through these four filters, but when I'm listening to an expert, I'm always looking for, are they competent? So do they really have the skills and experience? Do they know what they're talking about. Um, are they reliable? Which is a really interesting question. So particularly with politicians, are they consistent with their behaviors and actions and words over time? Um, so that's sort of like their how, their hard skills. And then I'm always looking for um, their empathy and the most important piece being their integrity as well. And when you start to add those four things up, I think the people that we trust are not necessarily the most trustworthy. They are people that now have the most social influence. Um, and that really worries me. Um, and the other piece that I think 
really worries me is that when experts, when people don't even trust the evidence that they put into play, you know, we're talking about fake news, but I think deep fakes, the era of deep fakes where, you know, my husband's a barrister and he talks about being in a courtroom. So for anyone who doesn't know, deep fakes are AI generated videos that are now, so you can, for example, take uh, hours and hours of footage of, say, someone like Barack Obama is one of the famous ones they've done, and, you know, map out what his mouth looks like when it's moving, you know, use a combination of simulation and existing footage to basically make him, and clips from words that he's taken, which he then remix to basically make him say, I hate poor people, that's why I instituted death panels and, and Obamacare. And there's no, and you know, as those things get better, it become harder and harder to see which ones are real and which ones are fake. At the moment, because of artefacts and the way they're done, there's another one I thought was incredible, which is an AI being able to simulate from pictures of a snowy road yeah. what it looks like in the sunshine and, and vice versa. And they, because they're looking like grainy dash cam footage, mm. it's actually of a quality that you would never suspect that it was a fake if you just saw it kind of quite casually. It's the time frame around this as well. So we... It came from the porn industry where many great inventions come from. But, um, you know, if you look at six months, the Obama video is a really interesting one to track because you look at it and you're like, well, no one would ever believe that. And then you look at some of the latest ones produced. You can literally put words in his mouth. So where I was going with evidence is he often talks about being in a courtroom. And what does he do when he shows a photograph or he plays a video and no one even knows whether they can believe whether that is true? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I find that whole. I, I try not to think about it too much because it's one of those things like climate change that just makes me leaves me feeling kind of profoundly <laughs> inadequate to the challenge. But this idea that you would show a police confession video, and particularly if it's filmed in kind of quite a grainy, you know, CCTV video, that kind of thing will become fakeable within five years, if that. I would have thought. I, was, I think even less. Yeah, and so I think it comes to one of the most. I'd say this in, in in a way, but like most important questions of our time, which is who can. We really trust. I mean, and and this is like, you know, my parents and my grandparents grew up in a generation where I'm not saying this was necessarily a good thing, but trust was very hierarchical. There were, you know, we're Jewish. They had their rabbi, um, their teachers, I would say. Their, the family doctor the who family told you what was doctor. wrong with you and you accepted it. Exactly. Um, they took things. It was often blind faith, but there was a comfort and a security in their lives and a simplicity in their lives because they knew who to look up to. And our generation, I think, is caught in that flux of so many voices, so much information, trust really and power and influence really shifting that we don't know who to trust. And that creates the vacuum that we're seeing right now where people who know how to speak to our emotions and not to facts are often the people that we believe. And so that, I think, is the problem that we really need to be solving for the next generation, is figuring out how do we teach them um, who they can really trust. And it's actually quite a profound question when you think about it, because, you know, I'm very lucky that I teach graduate students, and they sometimes cite Wikipedia as a source. And I don't blame them for it, but I think, like, how could you... They, they're learning at Oxford. How could you have got to one of the best universities in the world and believe that's where you go for reliable information? So I think this question actually really starts young, is that we need to start thinking about um, who can you trust and where do you get that kind of information and teaching those skills from a really young age? Well, people can start by buying <laughs> your book. It's called Who Can You Trust? <laughs> See what I did there. And it is out now in paperback from Penguin. Thank, Thank you. you, Rachel Botsman. Thank you.